We are creatures of desire. What we most desire is meaning. What makes us suffer most is a lack of meaning. The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. Marital therapist, author, and communications trainer Andrew G. Marshall invites guests from all walks of life to discuss what makes life meaningful. Hello, I'm Andrew G. Marshall. Welcome to The Meaningful Life. What would you do differently if you only had a year to live? It is just one of the great questions posed by my guest Georgina Skull, who is the author of a new book, Regrets of the Dying, Stories and Wisdom that Remind Us How to Live. It starts with a quote from the poet Mary Oliver, which also sums up the purpose of this podcast. Tell me, what is your plan to do with your own wild and precious life? Beautiful quote. How does it speak to you, Georgina? Well, I mean, the reason why I wrote the book was because I nearly died. And I thought I've got a second chance. And so it made me think more widely about how I'm spending my days and my years, really. So let's go straight into that. You had an ectopic pregnancy. I did. Take me through it. We've been trying to have a family for quite some time. Managed to have a daughter after one ectopic and a miscarriage. And then I had another ectopic. And this one ruptured. And I lost a lot of blood. And it was touch and go, basically. Um, The doctor said I was about five minutes away from death. Five minutes away from death? Yeah. Wow. How does that impact on you when you're told that piece of information? Well, I think for quite a time afterwards, because my daughter was about two when it happened, I think the overriding thing was me looking at her and going, you know, you might not have known me. You might have lived the whole of your life without remembering how I smelled, what I sounded like. So I think that bit was quite shocking to me, that this life, with these components that were so important to me, I might not have been in it. But it's also just a weird concept because you are here. It's quite hard to wrap your head around, to be honest. Because we sort of take for granted our life, if that really makes any sense. On a day-to-day basis, we take it for granted, don't we? I totally think we do. And that's that saying where it's like the days are long, but the years are quick. And, you know, they kind of roll on this summer, this summer. And before you know it, you're kind of hitting different stages. And you don't necessarily feel that age, but the reality is you are. I think it just made me really realise that we have to think about death, because death is part of life, to make sure we make the most of the life bit. Do you know what I mean? Exactly. I mean, it's something that I feel incredibly strongly, and it's one of the reasons why I've invited you on this podcast. I've said this before, my father died just recently, and he was 91. And probably when he was about 89 or 90, I asked him, have you ever thought about death? My mother, his wife, died about three or four years ago, and he said, no, I haven't really thought about it. Do you think about it? And I said, well, I possibly think about death about once a week, maybe a little bit more than that. And he looked at me as if I had arrived from a totally different planet. How strange. So you'd never had family discussions about it or it never come up? No. I mean, I came from a family where we talked about the geraniums and how nice the weather was and the one-way system in Bedford, but not things like that. Did you come from a family where you talked about death? I don't think I did either. I mean, it was kind of typical working class family, really. Mum was a stay-at-home mum and cleaner. My dad's an artist, but he had to do other things as well. 
and my dad's not, I'm sorry to hear about your dad. My dad's, my dad's got terminal cancer now. And so going through those kind of thoughts, it's watching someone else go through that process where they have time to think after interviewing so many other people that have gone through that process is seeing it from a slightly different angle, actually. But no, we didn't really have those big conversations. I wonder if it's a generational thing, though, because there were so many things we just didn't talk about. Things would happen, they kind of get brushed under the carpet or, I mean, it's just the vibe of the day, wasn't it? You kind of left the house in the morning, went out all day. I can't really remember my mum asking me what I did, really. She checked to see if I'd eaten my packed lunchbox and that would be pretty much it. Uh, as long as I was back by dinner, which almost seems inconceivable these days because the kind of chats I have with my daughter now, who's nearly 13, are just about everything in the whole world. And I just don't think we had maybe those relationships. I think those kind of relationships back in the day were quite few and far between. I'm sorry to hear about your father as well. Has actually having all these conversations with people who are dying, has that actually helped you to have a better conversation with your father or is it your relationship with your father is sort of too close to bring that material in? I think it's helped in a way because I've tried to remember that it's him that's primarily going through it and there might be things I'd want to say and do which he doesn't and his wishes need to be respected, how he needs to deal with it. He's kind of in denial to be honest, like he knows what's going on but the duration of time he thinks he's got left it's not my place to say, dad, that might not happen because that's how he deals with it. And everyone deals with it in such different ways. I mean, I found that when I was reaching out to people, you know, to see who wanted to talk to me. And there was definitely two camps of people, people that were very, very keen to, to talk because they had no one else to really talk freely and openly about it because they're worried about they're going to upset somebody, you know, because their families are maybe in denial. They're like, just don't talk about it. Like it's not happening. And then the other camp who were like that themselves, you know, they knew what was going on, but it was like, I'm not going to bring it to my door. It's I'm just going to keep on keeping on. And that's how I'm going to cope with it. So I think maybe interviewing all these different people made me realise that everyone has their own process. And that's okay. Completely okay. It has to be respected. Like some people want to talk and some people don't. And some people want a prognosis and some people just don't want to know. And I don't think it's up to other people to kind of impinge and imprint what they think on other people, really. And at the other end of the scale, have you had conversations about death with your daughter, having written this book? I've had a lot of discussions with her about death, actually. And she's very open about talking about it. We've talked about whether we think there's a heaven and hell and what we think happens afterwards. She's very free talking about it. In fact, she had to write a short story for school a few months ago, and she wrote it about the afterlife where there was like a fax machine and this girl was in charge of, you know, this fax machine basically said whether someone was going to heaven or hell. And she realised that this young girl, this other young girl was going to get sent to hell. And it was her worry about whether she should tell everyone this is, this is where she was ended up. I mean, it was brilliant, really. I did think at that point, maybe she's heard too many conversations. Like maybe I'm talking about a little bit too much, but Yeah. <laughs> So you have no idea whether she ate her packed lunch or not, but you know all her attitudes about death. Yeah, exactly. You had a second chance. Did you use your second chance after you were told you were five minutes away from death or did you just keep on keeping on? I think it was worse than keep on keeping on, actually. I think I just retreated completely. I knew I wasn't really happy with quite a lot of components of my life. I was living in New Zealand and it's such a beautiful country, but 
at the time, it's weird because I'm quite outdoorsy now, but back then I, w- I really wasn't. And I was probably a little bit too young when we went over there to really fully appreciate it. So I wasn't really happy in the country I was in. My relationship with my husband wasn't going very well and hadn't been for some time. And there are things I should have been changing, but I didn't. I kind of just retreated in and I think I just became more and more unhappy because I wasn't facing up to how I really felt. And I think that honesty with yourself is the key. It's such a key thing, I think, for any of us. I think if we're lucky, or this should be unlucky, we do get some sort of kind of wake-up call. I lost a job that uh, I really loved. The lucky part of it was I got six months salary. And that gave me time to actually ask myself, what do I really want to do? And I think that is an incredibly important thing to actually have some space and time to ask yourself, what do I really want to do? Or it could be that life comes knocking on your door and asks you that question. So what was it that sort of knocked on your door and said, you know, hang on, you need to pay attention here. You can't carry on like this. Yeah, I've thought back to this. So I started making changes probably about five or six years ago. I don't know if there was one proper moment where I went, I've had enough. I think it was an accumulation of things. I just generally felt unhappy and dissatisfied. And part of me knew it was the circumstances I was in. And part of me knew it was the mindset I was bringing to the door. There were things in my life that were really good, but I couldn't see them because all the other negative stuff was kind of blinding me to them. And I thought it was a waste. Like I could almost look at myself from the outside and go, like, for instance, the house that I'm in at the moment, you know, it's not big, it's not snazzy, but it is lovely. It's got a tiny poster stamp garden. And I remember going, oh, I'd really like a big garden. I'd like to do this with a garden, I'd like to do this with a garden. And then you get to the point where you go, well, I could make this lovely. Why don't I make this lovely? Why do I have to wait to the next step, to the next goal is achieved before I can finally feel a certain way? Because we all know that doesn't happen. There's always something else we want to do and we kind of are never satisfied. So I think it was an accumulation of those things. I'd always had a problem with my weight, for instance. I'd yo-yoed, I've been put on diets when I was a child quite young. I think I just got to the point where actually it's not about weight loss, it's about being healthy. I want to feel my age. I was feeling really old and a bit useless. And I was like, I'm just going to start walking. I'm just going to start treating myself kindly. And I think then it was just like a general thing. I started trying to do loads of different things to join in. I call it like joining in with life again, because I definitely felt like I wasn't joining in at all. But none of them seemed to work. So I thought it was that whole honesty thing. I thought I'd face it head on. And it was when I started having these conversations with people. I started, I did a podcast first, which is what led to the book. And I had no idea if anyone was going to listen to it, if it was going to be of any interest to anybody. There was no grand plan. The plan was to give people space to chat and to speak honestly. And for me, just to listen, really. It was like an education in listening because, I mean, you know, doing this job, this is more of a, like a two-way street. But when I did that, I'd honestly sit on the floor, record them for two hours and almost not say a word because the other person just wanted to, to speak. But Andrew, I didn't think there was one big, I think it was accumulation of stuff. I was feeling more and more unhappy, more and more disaffected. And I was just like, I wasn't enjoying the stuff I should have been enjoying. So that was the time really. But something inside you sort of knew better and said, you know, if you go open this door, which in this case was starting a podcast, you're going to learn something important. Uh, Am I getting that right? 
I think so. Yeah. I think I tried different ways. I tried joining clubs and going to therapy and other ways that I thought would kind of click me back in, but none of them worked. So it's like a, I'll do something I've never done. I do something I'm scared of. I had no idea how to make a podcast. In fact, I'd never actually listened to a podcast before I made mine. <laughs> I know it sounds a bit weird. I mean, obviously I listened to stuff on the radio, but I didn't even know how to download them. I was just like, but my friend did a podcast. She was like, do a podcast. I was like, okay. So it was basically a year of feeling ill because I just kept on being so nervous, <laughs> nervous about upsetting people and nerves, nerves, nerves. But I think it was breaking out that comfort zone and doing something radically different that somehow made me think, if I can do that, I can do this. You know what I mean? Like if I can contact someone I've never met before, sit down, by the end of the conversation, they're giving me a hug. You know, we've shared tears and I go on my merry way and somehow I've helped the conversation along. Then it makes me less worried about doing other things, you know, making decisions and taking control, I think, maybe. So what I'm hearing is the importance of actually breaking out of our comfort zone. Definitely. Yeah. I think most of us are creatures of habit. I mean, I've noticed this when I go to a cafe. If I've been there before, I will generally sit in the same seat every time. And I'm not quite sure why. (laughs) And if someone else is sitting in that seat, I feel slightly peeved. I don't know why, because I don't own the place. People get like that about parking where they park their car. That's my spot. I always park there. The route they take to work, they do the same route every day. And we get the same takeout when we order takeout. And it's like, it makes us feel secure and everything else. But I think the worry is sometimes that security, it can be a safe place to be or it can suffocate you completely. And I think I had all these safe things around me, but they weren't really making me happy anymore. They were making me actively unhappy. And then that's the point where you go, actually, I need to change because change is scary. Change is super scary. But if what you've got right now is not making you happy, then what's the alternative? Carry on being unhappy with what you've got and what you know, or changing it up, trying tiny little moments in your life just to go, right, I'm going to try this. And so how did talking to people who are dying help you learn about change, do you think? Well, I think the main thing was more about the coming at it from a regret side, really. Because when I went to go and see them, and I think the problem with my, my mindset was I would constantly rewrite history, like as in, I'd be like, I'd go and travel somewhere or I'd have a day out. And I'd always be the thing I didn't do that day would be like, why didn't I do that? Why didn't I get that done? It's just small little moments, but it was almost like an accumulation of these regrets. Like, I wasn't where I should be. I, I'm not as good as I should be. I'm not as slim as I should be. It was almost like I was made up of all these things that I, that I shouldn't be. I don't know if I'm making sense. I'm just, I just wasn't good enough in my eyes, I suppose. And I thought, this is a horrible way to live. You know, this is, this is no good. And I suppose other people that are, are going down that road and they've had actually, you know, longer periods of time to contemplate what their life is for, knowing that their life is restricted. They're only going to last like a year or two years before they die. They've had real time to contemplate. I think I just wanted to hear what they thought. How did they deal with stuff now that they knew they couldn't really make any changes? What things stayed with them, you know? That idea that you're not enough, one of the stories in the book is about that. Anthea, who was 39 and had melanoma, uh, would you mind sharing that story with us so that we can sort of get a sense of how 
important that idea of combating that you're not enough is. Yeah. There's a few stories actually where it kind of links, but that one in particular. So she started using sunbeds when she was very young. And I think it was kind of powered on by her her mum's view of what a girl should be, that they had to be on a diet and they had to look a certain way. And because she went on all these sunbeds when she was younger, she ended up getting melanoma. And she she's actually passed away now. She she died in her mid-40s. I think she was 40, 45 when she died last year. And um, otherwise fit and healthy. No need for her to be dead at this moment. It's just really upsetting, actually, because she was such, she was one of those funny people. She was from Wigan. She just had a wonderful idea of life, really. But yeah, I think she just had that feeling that she wasn't enough and that there were things going on in her family that were very heavy. Her stepdad basically abused her from a young age. And because her mum didn't stand up for her when she found out, I think that was another like nail in the coffin of you're not enough, this person's more. I mean, I don't know how someone would deal with that. I think that's such an incredibly hard thing to deal with. You go to your parent as an adult and say, for years he abused me. The courts took him to jail. You know, I mean, he got did jail time and everything. The mum said she wasn't going to have anything to do with him, but she carried on her relationship and she basically cut her daughter off, which is kind of what her stepdad always threatened. If you tell anybody, you'll, you'll never see your mum again. And it happened anyway. Luckily, she married a really good man and they had two lovely children. And I think that really buoyed her. It made her realise her value a lot more. And they believed in her. So then she started believing in herself. But I think that thing of not feeling that you're enough is quite universal because we are constantly showered with big ritzy homes and fantastic careers and the perfect body. And it's just nonsense, really. It just really is nonsense. I mean, one of the other women that's in the book, Katie, and she died when she was 32 of bowel cancer. She only had it for a year. That's why the whole year, if you had a year to live, just Katie just breaks my heart every time. But she was, again, an amazing woman left behind a family who, you know, still adores her completely. But I think at the end, you know, the thing she was saying was, what I want to do is just go and play with my kids in the sand, you know, go to the beach and just spend time with them. I just want to have another holiday with them. I want to see another birthday. And when we think of those things that maybe would have propelled Anthea to go to use sunbeds or try and diet and change herself, it just makes you realise that actually at the end, the really important stuff, this the bigness of your house, the amount in your bank account. I mean, obviously we need enough to live, but it actually makes no difference. It really makes no difference at all. And if we're constantly told that this is what we have to chase for, I think I just think it's such a wrong message and it just seems to be all pervasive at the moment. I don't know if you find that. but Yes, I, I agree that we're forever being sold things. And I think that your book is really important to remind us that that's not what it's all about. I mean, I want to talk quite a bit about Libby and her letter to everyone that's in the book. I'll come back to some of the other things I learned in a moment from her. But I just want to read out one of your quotes from her because it is just so important and it lifts up what you've just said. She says, money, prestige and power are distractions from the real meaning of life, which is loving and helping others. I mean, I'm sort of almost overcome with emotion because that is just so startlingly true, isn't it? I think the thing was also is that she's, again, so young. She's in her 30s. I think it brings extra kind of heartbreak over it because if you're 70 or 80 and ill or looking at the end, then that's 
you know, really difficult and hard. But when you're that age and you feel like you're missing out on the whole of a life. But yeah, exactly the things that she'll miss are those, the people and the love, you know. So I think it's always about love, to be honest, the love we have for, for the people around us and the love we have for the things we do. I mean, I think one of the things that Libby said, which was really got me thinking, is that the stories in our society, the stories that we're telling all the time, you know, basically in every movie, the protagonist gets saved at the last minute. Somebody comes along and, you know, pulls them out of the burning building, so to speak. And we've been told that story so many times, we sort of can't believe that it's not true in real life as well. Yeah, I think we always expect there to be a, like you say, there's some magic potion that steps in and and helps out and sorts out and some miracle cure, but it's not always the case. It's not always the case. And I think we, what we were saying, you know, to begin with that whole thing of reminding ourselves that at some point this, waking up every day, enjoying the day, experiencing the day, at some point that's not going to happen. That's why it's so, I think, so imperative when we listen to people like Libby, that we really hear them because she's she's not saying these things lightly. She's saying it from someone that's going to say goodbye to her. I mean, Violet's three or four now, I think. It's incredibly difficult what she's going through right now. I think one of the other things she, she talks about as well, which I found really interesting, was that when you're dying and it's you that's dying, it's like you go through the five stages of grief, but in reverse. I find that I'd never really thought about that because obviously if you're watching somebody else, you're not in control of that. Or you, someone's just died and you've heard about it and then you go through those stages of anger and disbelief and, or, you know, the different stages that you normally go through. But when it's happened to yourself, I think it's quite a, because you want that magic potion, you want that miracle cure to come in and save you because you're a good person and you love your family and why should this be affecting you? I think something that's missed actually a little bit in the conversation with people who have terminal illness is they do get really angry sometimes. The whole, why me? you know, why me? Which I think is an understandable question. I'd be absolutely livid, you know. I mean, I'm 40, how old am I? 40, I have to think then. (laughs) I'm 48. So I had 10 years, 11 years now, which I could have been dead effectively. So I'm really, I consider myself incredibly lucky. But still at this stage, I still feel like I've got so many decades effectively. So if you don't have those, you know what I mean? And and you don't get that miracle cure and someone doesn't step in. It's almost unbelievable, isn't it? And what did you learn from the older people that you interviewed? I think there's a slightly different vibe. I think they were much more resigned to their situation, to their regrets. They managed to have the time and space to reason them out and to come to terms with them. I mean, in every story, when you read it, which is something I found quite interesting, sometimes their regret wasn't the thing that you thought they were going to regret the most. And normally when you listen to the whole of their story, there's a very good reason why it happened. You know what I mean? Like Sid, for instance, he's in the 70s. He lost the love of his life. He hadn't seen her for 50 years. I mean, it's a hell of a time. Never got married, never had children, but still kind of longing for her and wondering where she is right now. But he knew deep down that it was untenable. And when you picked apart what had happened and why they broke up, it was like you had the chance to do something then, but there's very good reasons why you didn't. There's normally a very good reason why we make the decisions we make. And I think when you live to an older life, you have a greater space and headspace to to contemplate them and come, come to terms with them. 
Whereas a lot of the regrets of the younger people were, I'm not going to live long enough. I'm not going to be able to achieve all I wanted to achieve because actually I've run out of time. Not that I've necessarily made a big mistake, but that I've just simply run out of road. So let's look at our relationship with regrets, because there was a time when I used to write a a column in a newspaper. I used to talk to celebrities and there were like 50 questions you had to ask them. It's called Sense and Sexuality. And one of the questions on it was, what's your biggest regret? And to be perfectly honest, I very seldom asked that question because there were more questions than you needed, because most people said, I've got no regrets. I didn't believe them, to be perfectly honest. So my question is, is it possible to live a life without regrets? Honestly, probably not. I think it's possible to feel like you have no regret if you approach life with a particular mindset. I mean, when I I spoke to a couple of chaplains near the end of the book, and one was religious, one wasn't religious, and the humanist one, you know, she thought it was impossible really to get to the end without any regrets. But if you were very rigid in the way you lived your life and what you thought was expected of you and of others, then you were more likely to have them. And that if you were a bit more movable in it, if you could kind of go, well, I made that decision for this reason, and you can kind of set it aside and be realistic about life and be a bit more, you know, then you're much less likely to feel it. I don't think it necessarily means you don't have the regret. I think it means you don't carry it with you. And I think they're maybe slightly two different things. Do you regret wasting time on a marriage that no longer worked? Yes and no. (laughs) Yes and no. Explain the yes and explain the no. (laughs) So yes, I do, because I feel like it was probably over for a long time before. And I think he probably would have agreed. Because when we finally decided to split, it was my idea, but you know, we disagreed on everything. There was no squabbles, no arguments. We're just like, we've just gone back to being friends kind of thing. And that's after 22 years of being together. So it's obviously the right thing to do. I would say I don't regret it because our daughter got to see us together and she got to live in the family, the family unit. And and again, it kind of, I did it for a reason. I obviously wasn't ready to be on my own and maybe he wasn't either. And you kind of, I suppose, hope that things will change. You hope that you're going to connect and you're going to live together into old age. I mean, I think very few of us get married or in a a long-term relationship with an easy access to just leaving it. Most of us are in that relationship and we're committed to it. We had a child together. We had a house together. And I wanted to find a way to make it work, really. But it felt too painful being in it in the end than leaving it as hard as that was. And that's one of the problems with our society. We want to have an either a yes or a no answer, whereas in fact, actually, the answer, as you say, is both yes and no. And we need to be able to hold both the yes and the no, really, don't we? Because they're both equally valid. Yeah, I completely agree. And I think when things end, it's very easy to look back and point blame or be angry about stuff and the waste of time and But it's like with all regrets, you normally make the decisions you make for a very good reason at that time. And you might have the benefit of hindsight and go, I shouldn't have done that. You know, maybe if I had my time again, I wouldn't make that choice. I'd be a bit braver. But, you know, I did the best I could with the situation I had. And I know my ex-husband did as well. I mean, he's a great person. He's a fantastic dad. And I think you're trying not to hurt everybody. When it gets to the point that you're hurting yourself, 
and then everyone starts to be, you know, to feel that, then you know it's time. The end has come and you have to kind of cut your losses in the kindest way possible. Now, one of the things that I thought reading the book was that how important it is to find the right path for us rather than the one that our parents think is the right path for us, our partner thinks is the right path for us, society thinks is the right path for us. What do you think stops us from actually searching for that path, that purpose? That's a really good question, because I think a lot of the regrets do come from trying to make other people happy or trying to live up to their expectations of us. I think part of it is almost like a kindness. It's maybe a mixture of kindness and a lack of confidence. Kindness because because of that, we want to live up to other people's expectations. We don't want to let them down. So we're thinking about how they feel about it almost more than we're thinking about ourselves. I mean, you see it when kids leave school, you know, the parents might have an expectation that they're going to go and do one career. It happened to a few friends of mine, you know, and they ended up doing something quite corporate, but actually what they wanted to do was something quite artistic. And you could see the parents' reasoning for trying to put them in that way. It's really hard to make money doing any kind of artistic endeavour. It's, it's, a, it's a tricky thing. Yeah, you're a writer. I'm basically a writer. Your father was an artist. You know, you're not going to be driving a Rolls Royce on, are you? <laughs> I mean, very few people make like a decent livable wage doing what we do. It's just incredibly hard. And you love your child, so you want them to do something that they're going to be safe and steady. But in the process, you might be putting them down a path that's actually going to make them very unhappy. But it takes a lot of gumption to say to the people you love the most and who you want to kind of look at you and be proud of you to say, actually, I'm going to take a chance on me. Because I suppose when someone's saying, take the easy route, it's almost like subconsciously they're saying, I don't think you've got what it takes to take the harder one, which is quite tricky, isn't it? Mm. Yeah. (laughs) I hadn't thought of it that way, but you're right. I mean, I think that one of the other things that possibly stops us from finding our own path is that we need to learn lessons. And I think that what is so powerful about your book is it reminds us that there are lessons that need to be learned. You know, we sort of almost have to go into the darkness to find the light. Yeah, I think you're right. One of the people I interviewed is like, if life was just like one long straight road, how boring would it be? And that's so true. Fighting for something and and trying it out, maybe failing a few times. That's not the worst thing in the world. It might feel really hard at the time, but then when you do succeed, then it feels so amazing. I think the, the trick is not to let all those outside voices completely dominate to the point where you're so scared. I mean, my family, to be honest, is quite fragmented. And I've always done my own thing. I've never, like my mum has always been very supportive about what we do. So I've never had that pressure to be anything. I mean, she used to say to me, if you want to be a bin man, be a bin man. Maybe not a bin man, but you know, (laughs) as long as you're happy, she didn't care, you know, just go and do whatever you want. These days, if you want to be a bin man, be a bin man. Be a bin man, be whatever, exactly, be whatever you want. (laughs) So how has the journey of talking to all of these dying people changed you? I definitely think I regret less. I think that part of me that does that and overthinks everything is still there. But I definitely think I managed to go, I did that, but for this reason, I'm putting it away. I'm not going to hark on about it. I'm not going to let it cloud my head and build. So it's kind of freed me up a lot, to be honest. 
Are you not living in the future anymore? I'm living much more in the now and not in a kind of yoga kind of meditation kind of way. I do still do plans for the future because you have to. I mean, I talk about, you know, I was living in the past and living in the future, but nothing was about today. And I think little moments recently have kind of showed me how much that's changed. Just, it sounds really silly, but I went, I love walking. It's one of my, one of my loves. And I was walking in Derbyshire and there was like another route and it wasn't planned or anything. And we were meant to be driving somewhere else. And we saw this sign and I was like, why don't we go and check it out? Whereas before I would have just gone, no, 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 we've said we're going to go to here, we'll go to here. And then that night I'd be going, but why didn't we do that? That's so silly. It's little micro moments like that. So we did the extra walk and it was really lovely. So it's that I can deviate now, whereas I never used to. I go with the flow a little bit more, which is a much nicer way to live, to be honest. And when you spoke to the dying, what did they see was sort of left at the end? I mean, I think when we do get to the end, I the things that we're left with are are those memories, the memories of the people we've shared our lives with, with the people we've loved, and the things we've done with them. That's kind of it, really. The grand plans are really important to us. We need to be able to strive towards things. If we're built that way, we have to be honest about it. But in the end, it's those having an ice cream on the beach with your best friend, giggling away about something silly, you know, going to the movies with your friends or, you know, spending time with your kids, just not having some amazing adventure around the world, but just being together and talking and having a laugh, really, just sharing sharing your life with other people. And perhaps taking the road less travelled in Derbyshire one afternoon. <laughs> I definitely recommend it. It's a very beautiful county. The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. Please follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, and visit our website, andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast, where you can join our supporters club and unlock bonus material and other benefits. Let me tell you about my Substack newsletter. I'd love my Meaningful Life listeners to subscribe. Now, the newsletter is a mix of relationship advice and my thoughts about building a meaningful life. I'm hoping that as it grows, it will become a shared space somewhere you can tell me your thoughts and suggest ideas for new podcast episodes. Some of the topics we've covered recently have been great books to take away on holiday and The Zombie Marriage, um, which feels like it might be uh, relevant from today's programme, where on the outside, it all looks fine. But for one person, or maybe both, something has died inside. And I'll be talking about that in the Substack newsletter. And if you'd like to read that, you can find everything at themeaningfullife.substack.com. So please do sign up. Details will also be in the show notes of this programme, along with the details of um, Georgina's book which I thoroughly recommend. Now, if you go to my website as well, you'll find out details about how to send in a letter to us because if there's something you'd like a second opinion on from myself and one of my guests, you can find a form there where you can send it in. My website is www.andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcasts. And this is sort of more a confession than a letter, but uh, let's see. I'm trying to decide what to do about a secret that I've been holding for a long time. 
Many years ago, I had a brief affair when I was away from home working. Shortly afterwards, I got pregnant and had a son. My husband was delighted. We had been trying for a while for a second child, and I didn't want to turn things upside down on a possibility. I told myself I would know when I saw my son, and I did, or at least I convinced myself that it was my husband's child. Except as my son grew up, I began to have doubts. My husband is into sport and my son is more into drama and arts, so he ended up playing ball with our daughter and going to her sports fixtures and falling asleep at our son's school plays. Every time father and son would clash, I would feel guilty. It was because my husband knew somehow, of course this is rubbish, but I would often side with my son. I told myself to protect him. Now I wonder if I was feeling guilty. Fast forward and my son is about to become a father himself and all those old feelings have come up to the surface. I don't know why I'm confessing to you, but I need some fresh input. I'm so confused. Does my son have a right to know? Am I just being selfish? So, Georgina, what did you think when you read this letter? What a horrible position to be in, Mm. what I thought. I mean, it's almost like there's no real winners, really. Is it selfish? Well, you could see it could be selfish either way. It could be selfish to tell them because you're basically blowing up their life, your the son's life and the husband's, because I can't imagine he'd want to be with you if you'd had the whole of your married life practically where she'd been telling you a lie and he'd been raising maybe somebody else's child. But if you don't tell him, I think, you know, if you, you have a right to know who your parents are, I think that would be really tricky. It's almost like you want to do some private test work out who's who and then if you need to tell tell or don't you know don't but I don't that's probably not very practical and it sort of raises the question what is a father you know is it donating sperm or is it all those years falling asleep in your son's um, drama activities at school and the million and one other things that fathers do yeah I mean obviously he's he's been the dad the one that's been there regardless of whether he's a biological dad but it's still a pretty big, it's a pretty big lie, really. And it sounds like she's having a tr- trouble living with it. And if she's still thinking about it all these years on, I have heard of people before who have had this real instinct that one or, one or both of their parents aren't their real parents. And it's bothered them and it, it's made them think, what's wrong with me? I just, but I feel instinctually that there's something is amiss. And then when they've been told the truth, they're almost relieved. They're like, right, that makes sense. I've had, um, uh, I had a client once who, how shall I put it, both knew that her father wasn't her father and also believed that he was her father, that um, her mother got remarried when she was like two years old or something like that. And she was always told that her stepfather was her father, Mm. although she has a sort of vague memory, but nothing she can put her her fingers on. But what also happened once, now she looks back, was that somewhere at school, somehow there'd been some mix-up and she was told this information and then she deliberately went and unlearnt the information. So it is a very complicated thing about what we know and what we don't know. Yeah. And I don't necessarily think just because he likes doing different things, you know, the dad's into sport, but the kid isn't. That doesn't mean anything. I mean, you get loads of, you know, siblings that are very different and children that are very different from their parents. I wouldn't use that as a clue for it. But I think 
the guilt that this woman is carrying around, it, it just can't be healthy because it sounds like it's colouring everything. You know what I mean? Like it must have affected her marriage. I could imagine that a distance would be there if she's being, um, you know, with one child, she's being overprotective. What's happening to the other one? And I think that what I would say is you need to talk to somebody and that somebody is probably a therapist like myself, you know, where you can spend all your time going through and talking about your regrets and the what-ifs and whatever. Make certain it's somebody who is going to listen rather than is going to be giving you their three penneth worth on what the right thing to do is so that you've actually really got a chance to talk about this, weigh it all up and either decide to do something or decide to do nothing, but that you've actually voiced all of this stuff. And I think writing to me is the first step towards doing that because somehow in your own head, it's much bigger than it actually is when it's actually out there spoken with another person. You can sort of two people together talking about it can sort of cope with it much better than one person it going round and round in their head. Yeah, definitely. And I think maybe talking through the implications for both of those choices, the choice to say nothing or the choice to say something, like you say, you could run it through in your own head, but a third party that just sits there and listens and then says, and kind of goes, well, where, where would that lead you to? Where would that lead you to? Because it might make her feel better thinking, you know, if someone has an affair, then sometimes they tell their partner just to make themselves feel better. And they're basically transferring the pain over to their partner. When actually, if you're never going to do it again, sometimes people just don't want to know. If they've learned from that situation, obviously it's bigger if a child is involved. That's quite a huge thing, really. Did you find secrets on deathbeds when you were looking into your book? There was only one secret, but that was more like a secret she kept, which was the Millicent story. There wasn't really many secrets that people had. No, not really. It was more actions they'd taken or decisions they'd made rather than a big, big thing. But again, that was with Millicent, it was her seeing something and her not speaking out about it. So it wasn't necessarily that. It was the regret of keeping the secret for somebody else, you know, and not not speaking up when she knew she should have done, you know, so it's slightly different, I suppose. And I think that this should be the first step towards you actually really talking and really thinking this through, because if it keeps on coming back, it means there's something that you need to unpack. There might be guilt around that you need to understand. There might be all sorts of things. So it might be bigger than this. This might actually just be the doorway to something. So I think give yourself the time to speak and be brave enough to take your feelings seriously. Thank you very much for writing to us. So I think now I have to say thank you, Georgina, for being a witness on The Meaningful Life. And I have to turn the spotlight onto you and ask the question, what makes your life meaningful? My daughter? To be honest with you, years ago, it would have been big things, but now it's um, it's kind of just the day-to-day stuff that I enjoy. So walking, meeting my friends, working, I love working, silly things really, but kind of all adds up, <laughs> adds up to a good life. Let's unpack just one of those things. How does walking make your life more meaningful? Well, because I have a tendency to kind of overthink stuff. I think walking is such a blessing because it gets you out and about. And you kind of, especially if you're walking a long distance, you're just getting out in nature. I live in Cambridge, so 
you know, I don't have to go that far before greenery hits me and just makes me feel level again. You know, things are getting on top of you or some of my work doesn't make sense or, you know, frustrations that everyone gets, feeling overwhelmed with life. And I go walking for whatever period of time. It just always feels like a good decision. Well, thank you very much for being my guest on The Meaningful Life. But the conversation doesn't stop here if you are going to be a subscriber to The Meaningful Life, because the conversation continues. I'm going to ask Georgina three things she knows deep down to be true. And I'm going to also go through the 10 lessons from the dying that she learned. So if you'd like to hear those things, it's very simple. If you listen on Apple, there is a button that you can press. You'll see there is a specific uh, edition that uh, of The Meaningful Life that you can subscribe to the bonus material. It's the same with Substack. And if you listen on another service, you can become a Patreon supporter. And if you want to find out how to become a Patreon supporter, here come the details. You've been listening to The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. You can follow Andrew on Twitter, like him on Facebook, and please leave a review wherever you consume your podcasts. Making, editing, and distributing The Meaningful Life comes with substantial costs, and we'd like to ask for your help. Visit our website, andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast, where you can join our supporters club and unlock bonus material for every program, send in a letter to be discussed by Andrew and his guests, and join a community of other people seeking to make their life meaningful. At the gold level, you get even more benefits. Production of The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall is by Michael Dooney. Social media by Madeleine Healy. Sound engineering and theme tune by Sebastian de la Luz Mendoza. And I'm Susie Colick. Please tell your friends and spread the word. Thank you.